Hello, and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for the best part of three years now, but for listeners who might not have heard it before, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist, architect, or in this case, author, about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm delighted to be chatting to someone who describes himself as a journalist, woodsman, and lifelong cyclist, Robert Penn. Now, Robert has written some of my favourite craft-based books of recent years, including It's All About the Bike, where he travelled the globe, finding the best components with which to build his dream bicycle, and The Man Who Made Things Out of Trees, which told the tale of what he did with an ash tree that he felled in some nearby woods. The books tell a personal tale which Penn deftly combines with a broader history and sometimes a bit of science, but really they're all about the importance of making. And his latest is no different. A little like Ron Seal, Slow Rise, A Bread-Making Adventure does exactly what it says on the tin. It's been described by Jenny Linford, author of The Missing Ingredient, as a wide-ranging, gloriously obsessive odyssey. Robert lives in the Black Mountains with his wife, three children, two spaniels, 12 bicycles and a collection of axes. He bakes his own bread in a wood-fired oven. Rob, hello, how are you? Very good, Grant. Very nice to see you and hear you again. Well, it's lovely to see you too, albeit over Zoom. Thanks very much for doing this. Pleasure. Tell me in the first instance, Rob, we like to kind of try and place these things. You're in the Black Mountains in South Wales. Can you describe where you live? Uh, Yes. So, I mean, I would say that it's the eastern end of the Brecon Beacons National Park to the north of the Usk Valley, which is, you know, one of the big rivers of South Wales. And it is a area of low hills, rolling moorland, sheep pasture kind of leading up to the moors themselves, steep bracken banks and generally speaking topped by heather and bilberry. And I would say it's it's the kind of landscape that a child might draw okay. if you gave them a set of crayons and said, draw some hills. Okay. And the room that you're currently in, there's a lot of books behind you. I can see that there's a kind of globe or an atlas uh, maps rather on the wall. Is this a study? Is this where you write? Uh, yes, this is a study. This is where I write. I'm sitting actually at the ash desk that I made when I wrote the book you just mentioned. This is one wall of books. There are several walls of books around the house. And actually the, the map on the wall is a map showing the route that I cycled around the world about 20 odd years ago. We're going to get into that at some point. But I'm quite intrigued in the first instance, the Black Mountains. How, why did you end up there? Because I'm, I'm guessing you're not Welsh, judging from the accent. I grew up in the Isle of Man, so I'm Manx, but, you know, left there when I was 18 and lived all over the place, really, and then ended up living and working in South London, working as a journalist. And my wife and I had one child and one on the way, and we were lucky enough to be in a position where we could kind of work anywhere, you know, pre the pandemic. And we went on a bit of a mind and physical journey to try and work out where in the British Isles we wanted to to live. And I knew the Black Mountains because I used to come camping here when I was a kid. And then I was at university in Bristol and I got my first mountain bike in Bristol. And so we explored the Black Mountains with mountain bikes in the late 1980s and so it always figured highly in my imagination that the mountains themselves look a bit like the middle of the Isle of Man. So there's that kind of child recognition in the landscape was really important to me. And then the other significant thing was living inside a, a national park because I was particularly interested in living in a place where the integrity of the landscape was likely to remain 
intact for the whole of the rest of my life. And actually, you know, I now think it's going to be heavily disrupted and we can talk about that if you want. But that was kind of one of the reasons that drew us here in the first place. Mm, mm. Can we talk about the new book, Rob? Slow Rise, A Breadmaking Adventure. Now, when I saw this, I presumed it was a reaction to the pandemic. I mean, the only thing that was harder to find than flour was toilet roll during that initial (laughs) period. But this must have been in gestation longer than that. So where did the interest in baking come from and why write a book about it? Yes, I mean, it predates the pandemic by several years. My book cycle is appallingly slow. This is not a recommendation to any young writer, but it basically takes me about five years. Right. From kind of conception of the idea and doing the research and then writing the book and then and then going through the publishing process takes about five years, which is ridiculous, really. Uh, so, yes, I was working on this one six years ago from now. So, I mean, ideas come incredibly slowly to me, which isn't very helpful, you know, if you're writing narrative nonfiction. But the bit that interests me about writing nonfiction is it kind of gives you access to retell stories about quotidian things and really, I suppose, illuminate those quotidian things. So the two books that you referenced before, so you've got The Bicycle, The Ash Tree, you know, who doesn't drive down a country lane and ignore all the ash that are growing in the hedgerows and in the forest beyond? And then kind of bread. So if there is a continuity in themes, it is about illuminating things which we regard as every day when actually they have immense value to us as human beings and bring great fulfillment to us as human beings. And so I'd always sort of thought about trying to write a book about food, but really the, I kind of focused in on bread because of my backstory in relation to wheat. So I stopped eating bread 10 years ago now, maybe a bit more, maybe like 12 years ago now, because I came to understand that it was making me ill, quite a common problem. And my wife said one day, I think you might be celiac. So I went and had a test to see if I was celiac. Celiac's a very well-known disease, which, you know, it's autoimmune disease. Well, it seems to be increasingly common now as well. It, It is increasingly common. The science is incoherent on why, but it is definitely increasing in prevalence, particularly in the Western world. And there is much speculation about why that is, but it's probably something to do with either how we grow wheat, the circumstances in which we grow wheat, or how we process the bread itself. So I realised I wasn't celiac. It's a very simple test. You know, your GP can do it. Realised I wasn't celiac and then a very simple blood test and then read more about modern bread and decided to stop eating it and got better very quickly. Can I jump in here a second, Rob? Because I'm quite intrigued because you talk about this pathway you've had through bread in the book where your mother, who was a very good cook, but she gave you, as you describe it, industrially made bread. You quote Mother's Pride, Some Blessed. I think we all ate that as children. And you ate bread through school, university and working life. And then there seems to be a moment where you went cycling around the world for three years and you developed this profound interest in bread or you tasted lots of different bread. So what happened there? What happened there was that you get on a bike and you ride a reasonable distance across the majority of countries in the world. The bread changes on a daily basis. That's how rich bread culture is. It, you know, you cycle across, I don't know, Turkey's a good example, Iran, Pakistan's another good example, all sorts of places. The bread literally changes each day. You know, you ride a hundred miles, you're in a different, let's say, county or province, and they ha- culturally favour a slightly different method of baking bread. And, you know, having come from that world of mother's pride and son blessed, you know, I, I had no idea that bread culture was rich. You know, you go to Germany, Romania, Hungary, 
the bread changes. And then you're back in London yeah. and you're eating all these different types of bread. Yeah. But it's when you moved, almost ironically, into the middle of the countryside that you went back to eating yeah. your mother's pride, your son's Exactly. Blessed, so when I got back from cycling around the world and lived in London for several years, I lived in Brixton where the bread was actually, generally speaking, very good. You know, there was a sourdough bakery, one of, I think, London's first ever sourdough, sourdough bakery down the road. There were a couple of makers of really healthy whole grain bread in Southeast England, which you could buy in our local health food shop, and then moved to the provinces, moved to the Black Mountains, and literally no good bread. No one sold it. No supermarket. This is 18, 19 years ago now. Nobody sold it. There was no provincial, no micro bakeries, no sad, no artisan bakeries, nothing. So yes, went back to eating medium slice white. And eventually that caught up with me, got ill, realised I could stop eating bread, got better. And then eventually, you know, it did arrive. Someone bought a sourdough culture called Bernard to our house (laughs) and said, here you go. I'm not a baker, so you're going to have to hold my hand through some of this conversation. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sourdough starter. Well, first of all, let's go right back. What is a sourdough starter? So a sourdough starter is a mixture of flour and water, which is already going through the fermentation process. So that means that's an ethanol fermentation process which is taking place, which releases carbon dioxide, which gets trapped in the matrix of the sourdough culture, which allows it to expand. So that's why it increases in volume and it's got active yeast and lots of active enzymes in it. So you use that to kick off the fermentation process when you make a loaf. So you mix flour and water and salt together. Okay. And yours was called Bernard. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so that wasn't my name. That was the name it came with. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Someone bought Bernard to our house. And I've done this with, I don't know, dozens and dozens of people now. I've split my sourdough starter and given half of it to somebody else. Mm, mm. So you begin baking. Yeah. Are you immediately eating the stuff that you're baking or are you staying off it yourself? So first of all, I had obviously no interest in it. I was still eating a lot of oat cakes at this point, which is basically, you know, all you eat when you take bread out of your diet and, and you know, you get fairly sick of oat cakes quite quickly. But anyway, someone bought the sourdough culture, Bernard, to a house. My wife learned to make sourdough bread. She taught me. I started making it, but still not eating it. And then eventually, you know, I mean, you weaken, you know, the smell <laughs> itself. Can you remember the moment where you could no longer resist and you thought, I'm going to Yeah, no, without question. I mean, the smell, it's knee-bucklingly good. And, you know, we live in a small farmhouse and literally the smell coming out of the raven just fills the house. And, you know, it's a blissfully sweet uh, smell, evocative of all sorts of things. It's the smell which, you know, supermarkets pump into their food stores and it's the smell which estate agents put into houses when they're trying to sell them. You know, it's a really powerful smell. And eventually I just couldn't take it any longer. <laughs> so I started eating it and also done a lot more reading by this point about the extraordinary plethora of small to important illnesses that circle around bad bread and modern bread, industrial bread, whatever you want to call it. And I had concluded by this point that for me, it was about fermentation time. So most modern bread is made using a process called the Chorley Wood Bread Process. And fermentation time takes about 30 minutes, let's say, you know, differs but let's say it's about 30 minutes. 
you know, the Saturday that we make ferments for 20 hours. And so for me, it was significantly about the fermentation process. So I started eating the bread and loved it and didn't get ill. Mm. Mm. And then building your own oven. And when did that happen? Well, yeah. So then, I mean, then I got slightly obsessed and, um, <laughs> you know, well, I suppose at that point I thought, goodness gracious me, you know, you're fishing around and looking here and there and everywhere for ideas for a new book. And actually sometimes they're in your hands. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I, I, I'm interested when you develop a fascination and you seem to me reading your books um, and we've, we've met, but we don't know each other very well at all, but reading your books that you seem like a bit of an all or nothing type of person. I think you mentioned in the book that you have OCD tendencies. I mean, is there a point where you think to yourself, you're, you're doing whatever you're doing. Is there a point where you think to yourself, uh, there's a book in it, in this, or does that come much later? I think it does come later. So I need to reassure myself that, you know, it's a fairly traumatic process writing books. For me, at any rate, it sort of bleeds me. I hate it. I mean, I've written, I, I wrote one book and promised myself I'd never do it again. It's a dreadful yeah. book, but yeah, yeah. It's dreadful. <laughs> I got- I'm sure it's not. But I mean, each time I write one, I promise myself I won't do another one. Yeah. But, you know, you forget and you come back. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if you do forget, but you just come back. So I think for me, it has to offer, you know, the book, the book writing process has to offer several things, you know. So there's the access to market, which is great. You know, you're trying to sell a few books. You might make a few quid. Nonfiction writing, generally speaking, doesn't make anybody a living, but it's a part of the way I make a living, and that's fine. For me, one of the other things that it has to offer is an entire lifetime's worth of interest. And, you know, I started to read about bread, the history of it, you know, the function of it as a symbol in religion, its place in culture, and that eventually leads me down the path to go, okay, I can write a book about this. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, I guess one of the questions I was keen to ask is that one of the things you point out early in the book is quite how important bread has been to us, as you've just alluded. And you write, the history of human civilization has been crowded into a few thousand years. Bread has been a constant over this period. Long before money, bread was wealth, and the control of bread meant political power. Can we unpick that? Hmm. What is the relationship between bread and power? Bread's incredibly important and is an access to power even today, but let's start at the beginning. So from the very beginning of human civilization, the moment we turned, or the, the era when we turned from being hunter-gatherers into agriculturalists or farmers, well, wheat and thereby bread was absolutely fundamental in determining powers you know human relationships so basically if you grew more wheat than you needed you accumulated more than you or your family or your immediate community needed for the coming seasons until the next harvest then basically you had something to trade and that meant power and from you know that power we began to accrete as a civilized people you know we began to develop systems of society and, you know, ranks in society, everything kind of came for it. And this is, of course, is before money actually even existed, you could trade wheat. And one of the really, really important things about wheat and something that's kind of neglected in the way we think about it today, because we've become so far removed from it, is that a wheat seed has an incredible life because it's contained, you know, the germ of the seed is contained in this amazing bran coating it means that you can keep wheat seeds for, you know, years, decades, conceivably hundreds of years, and then you still have in your hand a seed that you can plant in the ground and it will germinate. Mm. So it's an amazing resource to have 
in your cupboard, you know, yard, barn, whatever. And that kind of goes all the way through to today. You know, so I visited Egypt for the purpose of the book. Bread there is still an incredibly important subject. You were warned if you got stopped by the police not to mention that you were researching a book on bread. It's that important in Egypt. Yes, can you imagine that? Can we explain why that is? Well, because it's still a politically sensitive subject, bread, mm. um, and, and the supply of it. And bread is state-subsidised in uh, Egypt for a, a minority, but still a substantial part of the population. That means access to it is afforded by the state. And when the price of wheat moves on international markets, you know, ironically, Egypt, having been one of the great bread baskets of ancient civilizations, now doesn't grow enough wheat to provide bread for its own population. So it has to import and is exposed to fluctuation in global wheat prices. And when the price moves, Mm. north, then that means that people in Egypt go hungry because the government can't afford to subsidise the bread for them. And that leads to uprisings. So the Arab Spring, you know, bread was not a fundamental driver. Access to bread was not a fundamental driver. There were more important, you know, civic issues around freedom and justice and representation than bread. But bread figured very highly in the imagination of all of the people who were rioting and seeking change throughout the Arab Spring. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing about the book is you do go through bread history, but history and, and from biblical references. Obviously, the Romans used to talk about the importance of bread and circuses. You talk about the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846 yeah. that kind of lifted protectionism in Britain and, and tore the Conservative Party apart. I think Robert Peel was Prime Minister from memory. Yeah. Bread, obviously hugely important during the French Revolution. One of the anecdotes that I hadn't really thought about was the role that bread played in the American Civil War. Maybe you could illuminate us on that. The American Civil War, one of the nastiest and dirtiest wars in human history. Well, of the first industrial war, really. Exactly, you know, I yeah. Think, very safe to say. Yeah. And one of the significant determining factors in it was that the North had wheat, had bread, and the South had cotton. And you can try, but it's really difficult making bread out of cotton. And in fact, you can't <laughs> eat it in any way. So that was undoubtedly a hugely important factor in terms of simply feeding your soldiers, but also for morale and also for money. So the North was able to export wheat at the time of the Civil War to Europe. Uh, that That's how plentiful um, the, the produce coming off the Great Plains was. Oh, it's fascinating. We kind of talked about the historical thing. I'm quite keen to bring it back to the personal element of the, the story as well, because the fascinating thing about you and the way you make your bread is that it's not just about the baking, but you rent an acre of field from a neighbouring farmer and sow your own wheat. What did your family make of all that, I wonder? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they thought it was a pretty strange undertaking, but they're quite used to me now. So <laughs> they kind of quietly engaged in it, I suppose. They sort of roughly get it. I mean, when I speak to them about the emotional and psychological benefits of baking bread, you know, their eyes obviously glaze over, you know, they're yes, teenagers. They're, they're teenagers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But they like being outside and they like a bit of a, an adventure. And um, and I suppose they've kind of inherited a tiny little bit of the madness. So when I said that I was going to rent an acre and sow wheat and sow it by hand, so I mean, as I ploughed the field with horses, sowed an acre of wheat by hand, harvested it with a sickle, they all came and helped then. 
and then threshed it at home in my barn, um, which is like penal work. Yeah, they, they weren't so keen on the threshing, I don't no, think. No, right? came nowhere near it. Absolutely nowhere near it. <laughs> and, then, and then I winnowed, you know, what I'd threshed to separate the wheat from the chaff and took all of the grain to water mill, local water mill in yeah. West Wales to be milled into flour. They interacted with it every now and then. And the principle was to basically make enough bread to feed them, the family, for a year. And I think I think they got it, you know. I mean, they, you know, they all tease me. They all say they'd rather have medium sliced white. <laughs> My son's just gone off to live in Lisbon. I said, "What are you most looking forward to?" And he went, "Not eating your bread." Yeah, you know, and that's <laughs> yeah. They're always quick to tease me, but I mean, I think they get it, and they eat the bread, and you occasionally, yeah, yeah. Yeah, saying to their friends, this is dad's bread. It's really delicious. Should I take my oh, there you go. Going right back to the planting, it wasn't just any wheat you planted either. He decided to plant Emma. So what's so special about that? I think one of the other important areas where modern bread has caused interesting degrees of ailments in the human stomach is in modern wheat. So basically that's kind of wheat that has grown in modern industrialised countries from the beginning of the 20th century and then exacerbated during the Green Revolution in the in the kind of um, sort of third quarter of the 20th century and into the modern era. And so what we eat now is really, you know, pale imitation of the wheat uh, that we grew prior to that. And so I started to read about this and came to understand that actually I should, in order to give myself the chance of eating the healthiest bread and finding the best relationship with between, let's say, the soil and my biota was to use a vehicle from pre-industrial era of wheat growing. And Emma is one of the two species, along with einkorn, which was domesticated by man at the beginning of human civilization. And it's remarkable that we know this and we have the archaea botanists to thank for it, but it's an incredible story. But those two varieties of wheat, Emma and Einkorn, were the two varieties of wheat that were first domesticated. They were the first crops ever to be domesticated by human beings around about 11,000 years ago at the top of the Fertile Crescent what we call the Fertile Crescent. To geolocate that more precisely, that's basically the border between Syria and Turkey and Iraq, that kind of around that T where those three borders meet. Yeah. So kind of Kurdistan, is that what we're Yeah, very much so. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely right. So Kurdistan, and there is a massif there called Karashadag, which is an extinct volcano. And that is where the science tells us those two varieties of wheat were first domesticated. And interestingly, they both grow wild there still today. You didn't just nip to your local grain merchant then, you went to Turkey to go and find these seeds. Well, yes. When you realise that the story of bread goes back that far, might as well engage with it and go and visit. And so I went to the top of Karashadag, you know, you can drive halfway up. I walked to the top with a couple of local lads and... It's rather exciting standing at the point below which human civilization started millennia ago. And I found it absolutely fascinating. There was a kind of point to all of these 
journeys, you know, so I went, I went to Turkey and I went to Egypt and Jerusalem and the Great Plains of the USA. So they were kind of, I was trying to find a point to each of them. And the point to go to Turkey was that the modern era of agriculture has only just begun to be introduced in that part of Kurdistan. I knew that there would be people there who knew exactly how to broadcast wheat by hand. And I was right. And I went there to learn how to broadcast wheat by hand, which is actually more of an art form than you, you think it might be. Well, no, you describe it in uh, in vivid detail in the book. And you also grew, and I'm going to see how I pronounce this correctly, Hen Gumro. Yes, um, very good. Thank yeah. you. Which is a well-known land race wheat in Wales. What is a land race wheat and why is that important, Rob? So it's incredibly important. You have land race populations in all sorts of different types of plant, not just wheat. Basically from the beginning of human civilization until the modern era of farming. So around about the turn of the 20th century, a little bit before in some parts of Britain, a little bit after in other parts of Britain, farmers seed saved every year in order to sow the next harvest. So before you took your cut, before you harvested, you walked through the field and you gathered the, the largest, plumpest, best seed heads on the wheat. And that is what you would use to sow for the harvest next year and thereby a field of wheat basically progressed in terms of adapting towards its immediate microclimate so including the soil and the weather so a a field of wheat wouldn't have one single species in it that's why it's called a population it might have a hundred 150 200 incrementally different varieties of wheat in that field And every time, like I said, you went, a farmer went through and seed saved and plucked off the plumpest and best and thereby basically improved that land race population by adapting it incrementally to the weather and the soil type, wherever it was. And what that meant was that you could, in 1850, walk across Britain and eat a different loaf made with a different variety of wheat almost every day. They're as regional and as exotic in their names, these land race populations, as apple types. So I grew Hengumra, but, you know, there's Orange Devon Blue Rough Chaff, Kent Old Hoary, Montgomery Red, April Bearded, Blue Cone Rivet. I mean, they go on and, you know, every kind of region would have had a land race population that was adapted to the weather and the soil type where it was grown. And that had all sorts of consequences. So one, you had huge genetic diversity in a crop like wheat, which is something that we're recognising now to be incredibly important. And secondly, as I've just said, it was micro-adapted by having lots and lots of different species of wheat within one field. It's kind of an insurance policy to changes in the weather, whether or not you had an early harvest or a late harvest. And it was really fundamentally important. And obviously, this is all pre-scientific hybridization. So basically... Scientific hybridization killed land race populations. And Hengumri is, is, is an interesting story because it was grown in West Wales, principally Pembrokeshire, Carmarthenshire and Ceredigion, which have a very wet harvesting season. If you've ever been on holiday in West Wales, you will know that the summer's going to be wet. <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah, which you have, exactly. What that means is that this particular population was adapted to wet 
summers. So you could always harvest something and it didn't fail. It was probably the last land-raised population grown at scale anywhere in Britain. And it was grown into the 1930s. Right. But then the seeds, by the time you came along wanting to use it, the seeds had died out, right? So basically what happened was lots of agronomists, that's a kind of modern term, may not have been agronomists back then, but people who understood the hybridization of wheat meant that we were losing a great deal of genetic diversity in the plant. They recognized that these particular seeds needed saving. And that's when seed banks were set up in lots of places across the world and seeds would have been gathered and put in the seed bank by some you know, bright agronomist who thought that they might well be needed at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And you found yours in Moscow. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't find them myself. Somebody else went and found them. Somebody else found them. Okay. So there was this Russian agronomist called Vavilov who went around the world on endless epic journeys gathering seeds to save them. And he stored these seeds at the, what is now called the Vavilov Institute in St. Petersburg. And there is an international accord that means that if you write in the, you know, following the right protocols to any seed bank anywhere in the world from the right authority, you can ask for an envelope of seeds of a particular type. And a couple of British wheat chasers, amazing guys, one of them called Andy Forbes, they found out that some of this hen gumra was stored at the Vavilov Institute. They applied for some, they picked some up and collected some. And literally it comes back as an envelope of this seed. And then you grow it one year, you know, effectively in a window box. And if it grows well, you might get 30 seeds per seed planted. So it grows and then you plant it out in a small patch or an allotment, grows again, and then eventually you get to kind of field size volume. So I grew some of that. Right, right, right. So you've got your seeds. We've established that you used a a horse and plough to sow in the traditional way. And then rather intriguingly, you poured cider into the furrows after they'd been sown. Why Why did you do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> Seems like a waste of good cider to my mind. It does seem like a waste of good cider. Once you start reading about pre-modern farming, pre-scientific hybridization, you come to understand that human beings had to somehow control the elements that prevailed over their existence. So going back to a time when when the harvest failed, people died of starvation here in the United Kingdom. It was common enough. And the horror of that meant that you basically induced whatever gods you believed in to deliver you a good harvest. So pouring a libation onto a field of wheat, you know, it would have been common practice, blessing it in some way. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're going to mention it, but I started playing music to my wheat. Well, you know, again, you know, I, yes, you know. I was going to mention that, Rob. <laughs> you won't be surprised to hear that my kids were pretty sceptical about um, <laughs> playing Mozart and Bach and the Ramones to my wheat. But it kind of makes sense when you begin to countenance the idea of a crop failure and starvation within your community. I wrote a note in the book as I was reading it that said he should have played Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers. Oh my God, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great track. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote that planting wheat remains a horticultural act of faith. I mean, you had appalling weather almost as soon as you finished planting the crop. The autumn 
that I planted, there were floods. And I mean, really catastrophic floods, you know, flooded hundreds of homes in Crickhow, which is one of our local towns. The river us burst its banks in most dramatic fashion and recently planted crops like wheat. They didn't really like that very much, you know, so if they sit in standing water, basically that kills the plant. Then, you know, Storm Desmond came, the field was covered in snow for weeks. I mean, almost everything that could go wrong did go wrong, which was interesting. You know, obviously what I was doing, I mean, I could go to Tesco's and buy a loaf of medium sliced white for 55p whenever I want. So my life, the life of my family wasn't in the hands of the gods. But if it had been, we would have been in significant trouble. The other thing is, as well as talking about the way that you decided to make your bread, you also look at the industrialization of agriculture. You look at how we gained in yields and efficiency, but also what we lost really along the way. You decide to go to South Dakota, meet a platoon, I guess, of men is the best way of describing it, who travel the Great Plains, harvesting crops. What were your conclusions from that trip? The biggest takeaway, which comes to you gently, you know, it doesn't really sort of whack you in the face. It comes to you after you've been up and down the Great Plains for a few days. Is There is no nature left there. It's in our consciousness here in Britain now that you drive for a day up the M6 and you don't get any insects on your windscreen anymore. Well, I mean, that couldn't be more true anywhere in the world than in the Great Plains. I mean, there is nothing. You get out of the car, there's no trees, it's kind of barren, and there's no birds, no insects, there's nothing in the soil. You know, you put a spade in the soil and turn it over. There's nothing, there's nothing living anywhere. It's extraordinary. You know, I mean, it's genuinely alarming and it creeps up on you. It doesn't hit you square between the eyes, creeps up on you over successive days. The other takeaway is that we're an absolute disaster of farming. And it does just doesn't need to be like that, I don't think. So if you don't, you know, and the world's waking to this now, protect the soil, we basically won't be able to grow crops quite soon, really. And um, that is beginning to dawn on farmers on the Great Plains now, that they have basically bled the earth of everything it's got. And they've been incredible years, you know. It was an agrarian agricultural revolution in America, which fundamentally powered uh, the development of the American economy and powered it into being one of the world's leading nations. And, you know, that's that's coming to an end, the agricultural part of that, because yields are incrementally, but nonetheless, unassailably decreasing. This obsession that so many of us seem to have with white bread, why are we obsessed with white bread, Rob? You ponder this in the book a little bit, I think. Yes. So there's an interesting history there, which is that long before white bread became available to the masses, basically coincided with great surge in the Industrial Revolution from 1850 onwards. That's basically when white bread became available to the masses. Prior to that, all the way back to the time of the pharaohs in ancient Egypt, white bread was prized over brown or wholemeal bread. And it's difficult to understand exactly why that is. It may be that White simply represents purity. So wealthy people preferred that. It may be that because the process to produce white bread was far more time consuming and thereby white bread was more expensive. Wealthy people you know, simply preferred to eat white bread. There may be other reasons. It, it's probably also related to the fact that once you had sifted out 
the the what is the endosperm, the starch of uh, the wheat germ, and left the germ uh, of the new plant itself and the bran once you've sifted out that white flour you basically taken part of the wheat grain richest in carbohydrates and you've left the bit that creates very tough stodgy bread has the nutritional value but basically if you eat bread only made from the german the bran of a wheat germ you will end up with no teeth which is what happened to the majority of people during the middle ages so there are various reasons why white bread was more popular. And then what happened in 1850 was this extraordinary democratizer from 1850s onwards. And it happened principally because of changing in practices uh, related to milling. You very much finger the steel roller mill as a villain in the piece. Yes. The descent from good bread into bad bread, modern industrial bread, which has a negative impact on society at a dramatic level. That journey began in 1850. And it was, to be fair, a series of well-intentioned wrong turns. And the first one was the development of the steel roller mill. So prior to that, from Roman times until 1850, all Wheat was either ground by hand, same for barley, same for oats, either ground by hand or it's ground on a water mill, you know, and we've still got dozens of water mills across the United Kingdom. So most people know what that looks like. So ground on a water mill. Uh, so there's two stones that turn on each other and powered by water, uh, a wheel which sits in a stream or a, or a race next to a stream or a river. And basically it was, it's not a very efficient way of milling. And we came up with steel roller milling in 1850. It's very difficult to trace the sort of exact origins of the steel roller mill, but it's probably first in Switzerland and then migrated to Hungary and then to back to France and then adopted in a very dramatic way in America, where, you know, incredible volumes of wheat were coming off the Great Plains for the first time. And... That still roller milling for the first time in human history made it unbelievably easy to separate the bran and the germ from the endosperm. So to create white bread for the first time actually became the inexpensive option, the cheap option. And that is what was fed to the masses accumulating in cities at this period of the Industrial Revolution. And you point to a bonkers situation where millers were selling the bran and the germ, the most nutritious parts of the seed to farms as animal feed. And I'm afraid to say they still are. Or the millers sell them to pharmaceutical companies who extract the mineral traces within the bran and the germ and the vitamins, and then they sell them back to us to supplement our poor diet. <laughs> I mean, go for it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> madness, isn't it? There you go. I mean, it's interesting because you're a really long way into the book before you really start actually baking. Do you wonder why baking has become so popular over the past decade? Obviously, one can finger the Great British Bake Off, which started in 2010. I'm sure that's played a role. But is there more to it than that? Yeah, I think there is. You know, a, a phrase which has been heavily bastardised through various means recently, but it's about taking back control. And I think a lot of people get that. More and more people are kind of awakened to the idea that you know, very briefly just mentioned that there are enormous emotional and psychological benefits to baking bread that actually surpass the physical pleasure 
a nutritional value that you gain by eating it. And I think that was probably thrown into greater relief by the pandemic than at any time recently. I think it's also more and more recognition of the fact that modern industrial bread is bad for us. So I think those are really important points. And I think, you know, for me, baking bread at home is an act of protest, you know, an act of protest against a food system that seeks complete control of what we eat. And in baking your own bread, you're protesting against that food system. And I think that's an incredibly important point. We just shouldn't wander too far from that. You know, Wendell Berry famously said, eating is an agricultural act. Baking your own bread is is a recognition of that statement. It also fits in with this interest in craft that you've developed over the past however many years, 15 years or so, I guess. I mentioned all of, it's all about the bike and the man who made things out of trees. Was it always your intention to write a trilogy? Did this just happen? It definitely wasn't uh, my intention to write a trilogy. It is about craft. You know, it's about using your hands and, you know, lots of bakers will, will, will describe to you the pleasure of kneading dough. It's pretty elementary pleasure, really, but nonetheless, it's a pleasure. And I think that's really important. So I think the, the, the craft of it, and you know, it's pleasing. I wrote in the book, when my bread comes out of the oven, the world is breaking someone else's heart. And you can do that every day with something incredibly simple. It's a process that you master over a period of time, which is really lovely. It's about learning to use a shave horse or learning to fix a bicycle. It takes a long time to get good at it. I think there's an elemental pleasure in that as well. Bringing that craftsmanship home is about limiting one's exposure to the bewildering forces of the global economy by bringing the provenance of things close to home. And that seems more important now than it has done at any point uh, in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I hope you don't mind me asking about this, Rob, but in the last book, the Ash book, you didn't seem in such a great place. You wrote about your depression and grieving for your father and how being out in the woods helped. And there's less of that in this book. You write about your family, as we've, we've talked about, and much more of a kind of, they're more comedic foils in many ways. Your, yes. your kids refusing to help with the, with the various elements of the, the task. I mean, are you in a better place now? Yeah, I think I probably am. I mean, and that's, you know, in general recognition of the fact that being outside in nature, I mean, again, it's not, not that kind of, so many things in the pandemic that happened to a mass of people during the pandemic, spending more time in nature, slowing down, um, baking their own bread, shopping local, you know, these are all things that I've been working on for a while and lots of them are directly related to dealing with depression. And I think I am. Touchwood had uh, depression for quite a long time. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, you make a strong case for the joy of artisanal bread. You've just been talking very, very eloquently about it. But is this a model we can go back to realistically? Do you have a sense of of how we can change the system of industrial making that we've got ourselves into? Oh my God. I mean, it's unbelievably complicated breaking down the white bread industrial complex. Not for a minute do I think that means we shouldn't try. As in all my books, I think it's kind of element of nudging about them. Like that's, you know, nudging for change, trying to encourage people to, to come on the journey with me to, you know, ride bicycles 
spend time in the woods and work with wood and introduce wood into their domestic environment. And in this instance, bake bread, bake bread at home, take the care to make sure that you're eating the kind of bread that suits your biota and is good for your family. And it has as much nutritional value as you can extract out of this quotidian food stuff. And at the same time, introducing, you know, some element of daily pleasure and meditation, Mm. really. Mm. So breaking that down, unbelievably difficult. Um, But there are lots and lots of voices arising around the world saying, let's make good bread again. You know, it's not just me. It's happening everywhere, everywhere I looked. And, And I think that's fundamentally encouraging. Yeah, yeah. Good. I mean, our hour is nearly up. So last couple of questions. Do you still have a loaf of bread as a screensaver on your phone? I do, I'm you afraid. <laughs> Which particular loaf is it and why? Uh, so, oh God. So, um, I mean, don't, as long as my kids don't listen to this, I might get away with it. So I have one of the, as it wasn't the first, but it was one of the first loaves I made with the hen gumra. And it was the kind of first one. So, I, I mean, as, as I recorded in the book, baking with wholemeal flour is incredibly difficult. You slightly have to relearn baking as opposed to baking sourdough bread with straight white flour or strong bread flour. It's about protein content. I won't go into that now. Wholemeal, particularly the land race populations that I was growing, tends to have low protein content. So you bake a lot of loaves that come out of the oven looking like stone age frisbees but one of the very first ones that actually came out looking you know like a loaf that you might see on the front cover of a book on baking and that's my my screensaver okay. on my phone. I, sorry i love the idea of stone age frisbees it's really touched me <laughs> <laughs> and, and final question rob well, what's the future for you is there another craft-based book in the offing i see you've co-founded a Reforestation charity, Stump Up Your Trees. What's that about? Stump Up Four Trees. Stump Up yes. Four Trees. Yeah. Stump Up Four Trees. So we are, uh, God, that's quite a long story, but basically what we're trying to do is plant a million trees across the Brecon Beacons area. So basically what we're trying to do is create a community of people who would like to be accountable for their own immediate environment. And so we're trying to raise money to give grants to landowners to repurpose a part of their farmland for woodland creation and the multiple ecosystem services that that provides. So that's carbon sequestration, top of the list for a lot of people, but actually not for us. You know, plant trees around here in the hills, you're engaging in natural flood management, but also significantly for us creating space for wildlife. So it's about enhancing biodiversity in our landscape. And um, and we're trying to raise the money and, and give give grants to farmers to do that. And we've engaged actually already a fantastic, we only got going just before lockdown, but we've engaged a great community of people who are willing to help. And it's genuinely exciting. Very good. Very good. Is there a book in that? Uh, I, <laughs> the man who planted a million um, trees around the Brecon. The Beacon. man who planted a million trees, yeah. Um, I don't think so. There might be a book in what I think is about to happen to the landscape. Um, I say about to happen. It, what, what I think is going to happen to the landscape over the next, you know, three to five decades. I think big change is coming. Um, but I have got another book idea, which is to write a biography of an oak tree. Uh, okay. Very good. Very good. Well, look, very much look forward to that. And maybe we'll speak about that in a year or two's time. We'll see. Rob, thanks so much for your time. It's literally always a pleasure. Fantastic, Grant. Likewise. Thank you. Slow Rise, a bread-making adventure, is available from all good bookshops. And to discover more about its author, Robert, go to robpen.net. 
As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>